If you've got your Bibles, I do invite you to turn in them to Psalm 11 this morning. Uh, before I moved into ministry, I was a teacher and a coach, and one of my favorite sports to coach was basketball. And uh, I coached at a small Christian school, Covenant Christian, on the west side, about 400 students. And so we were a relatively small school, and um, yet our conference was comprised of all the inner city city schools that were significantly larger than us, significantly better than us, far more athletic than us, and uh, and so we had to rely a lot on fundamentals and um, uh, you know dribbling, passing, shot fakes, all the you know good old Indiana uh, basketball um, staples. Uh, but often during these games, you'd have these six, eight, super athletic, you know, guys flying at you all over the court. And uh, a lot of times I would just have to call timeout because the guys would get sped up. Uh, they'd start wetting themselves. And I'd just say, whoop, whoop, bring them over. Here are the clipboards. Let's go back to the fundamentals. And so that's what I want to do this morning. I just want to call timeout uh, because I feel like all that has gone on in our culture uh, has really sped things up. I, I've seen so much worrying and anxiety. A big part of what I do at LifePoint is work with college and young adults, and um, they don't have the foundations, haven't been as solidified as they have for some of you who have walked with the Lord for a long time. And so uh, they're beginning to fret and worry. What's the job market going to look like? I, I'm seeing my investments fall apart. I, I don't know if I'm going to have my wedding at the right time. And so they're getting sped up, and I've had to do the same thing with them and just say, time out. Let's gather. Let's look at what we know to be true, and let's go back to the fundamentals. Because when we look around, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. We're in the middle of um, rioting in the streets. There's political uncertainty. There's anger around every corner, financial instability. And so really nothing more this morning uh, than I want to do to just remind you, right? Much of preaching is reminding, not informing. You rarely walk out of a sermon and say, man, that's new information. But we do have a tendency that we just need to be reminded, we need to call time out, and so that's what we're going to do this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, um, I invite you to stand with me while I read through Psalm 11. And it says this, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend their bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let me pray. Lord, may your word penetrate our hearts. May it transform our lives. May you encourage those this morning that need to be encouraged. And may you confront those of us that need confronting. Do all these things for the joy of your people and for your great name, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we don't know exactly when David writes this psalm, but the situation becomes uh, pretty clear and it's timeless. It may have been written at a time when Saul was trying to hunt him down. It may have been written when Absalom was threatening the kingdom, but it is a timeless truth for people to feel threatened. And I can imagine them sitting around a campfire, David and his closest friends, and, and his friends kind of making nervous eye contact with each other and saying, David, we got to get out of here, man. We've got to do something. 
We're threatened. We're surrounded on every side. And I can see David taking a sip of his coffee and looking down because he knew that he was in trouble. He knew that the foundations around him in Israel were beginning to erode. And it's one thing to have personal issues, but it's another when you look around and you say, there's no stability absolutely anywhere. When corruption rules the government, when justice is perverted, when crime is rampant, when something as as fundamental as marriage is mocked in a culture, what do we do? I find it humorous when people look at the Bible and they say, you know, this is an outdated book. And I say, are you kidding me? This could have been written today. Right? We're echoing those very same questions. How many times have you sat there in the last couple of months and said, I, I don't know what to do. Everything seems to be crumbling around me. And so we don't know the exact circumstances for David, but it's clear that he felt that the, the society as a whole, the very fabric of his culture was being ripped apart. God's word is being ridiculed in Israel. He's being mocked. His justice was being ignored. His laws were being questioned. His commands rejected, and it's no different today. We slaughter our children, and we call it choice. We celebrate sexual promiscuity in the name of freedom. We redefine marriage, gender, morality in the name of tolerance. Pornography is labeled as art. Violence is a form of entertainment. Vulgarity pervades our music and our movies. Authority is mocked. Sin is dubbed nothing more than a disorder. And God's very existence in our lives is denied. But the greatest illustrator of how far we've fallen and how much the foundations are beginning to crumble is how shame, things that were once shameful are now brought into the open and celebrated. It's almost being courageous. And it's the fulfillment of Romans 1, where the judgment for sin is more sin. And Paul goes on and he says, people actually invent ways of doing evil and they nod approvingly of it. And so we're asking these same questions. What do the righteous do when the foundations are destroyed? You see, this is practical theology. This is not theoretical. This is the here and now. We are living, in a sense, Isaiah 5. And and listen to what the prophet writes in Isaiah 5. He says, Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin with cart ropes. The picture is they love it so much, they wrap ropes around it and they pull it to themselves. And then they challenge God. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. In other words, God, if you're going to do something, you need to act, but we don't believe that you will. And Isaiah goes on, he says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Friends, our culture is doing the same thing, wrapping sin up and pulling it to ourselves in the same way and challenging God, come and judge us if you're really there. We think we're so mighty, but we can't handle disagreements without people melting down. We think we're so wise, we can't even decide which bathrooms to use. Things that should be foundational no longer are. And the only rule is that everybody gets to choose their own rules, but take no responsibility for breaking them. Responsibility has been replaced with therapy, and we never get out of our great foundational need, which is reconciliation with our Creator God. In our culture, we are the foundation on which we build, and we all know in an honest moment how sturdy that foundation is, don't we? Hopefully, I don't need to convince you of the problem. You see it with every flip of the news stations. But what does David do? 
And I think he offers us a couple of options. But before we get there, look at verse one. He says, in the Lord, I take refuge. He begins with a declaration of truth because everything else is going to fit under that umbrella. All the questions and all the dangers are going to be read in light of that truth, that God is David's refuge. It's important for us to notice that David doesn't start with how he's feeling. Who cares how he's feeling? His feelings don't, they're going to change any moment, aren't they? I mean, look at your own life. How many times have you woken up in the morning and said, oh, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And then your K-cup machine spills coffee all over the place. And you go, why, Lord, why? You cry out. We are a fickle people. Our feelings change by the moment. But David doesn't even start with what he thinks. We can't believe what we feel, but neither can we believe what we always think. We cannot be trusted to tell ourselves the truth. We lie to ourselves all the time. This is why Paul says, take every thought captive. Thoughts that come from outside, take captive. Thoughts that come from inside, take captive. Put handcuffs on everything that enters your brain. Put a spear in its back and drive it to the searing heat of God's word to determine, is this true? Can I bank on this? Can I stand on it? Do that before we listen to ourselves. And so David, before David even begins to answer the question, he starts off as, he, as if he almost has to just remind himself, look, I don't know what's going on, but I know that I take my refuge in the Lord. That's where I'm safe. And then once he's established that, once he's recalibrated himself to that truth, he asks the questions. What do the righteous do when the foundations are crumbling? And I think David gives us three options. We have three options, I think, from this psalm. The first is this. We can retreat, right? It's apparent that that's what David's friends are asking because he says, how can you say flee to the mountains? But they would have been saying, David, let's just get out of here. And I can't tell you how many times in the last year I've heard Christians say, I just got to get out of here. I just have to leave. I can't take it anymore. I don't know what to do. The pressure is too great. I'm anxious. I worry. I got to leave. I don't know that that really fixes anything. But I can understand how we get there. Being in ministry has been unbelievably difficult in some ways to be on the front lines of seeing how many marriages are struggling, how many men wrestle with pornography, so many angry teenagers looking for meaning and direction. And that's just in the church. And what parent out there has not looked at where the culture is headed, looked at their young children and said, I got to get out of here. I don't know what to do. I don't know what things are going to look like when you're 18, 19, 20 years old. And I think that's why this first verse is so vital. Because if God is a refuge for his people, then being with him is the safest place to be. We're safer with him in a war zone than we are hidden in a fortress without him. When our kids were little, Kirsten and I, well, we do it now all the time. We, we, take, we go on hikes every, every year to Colorado. And um, we put little kids in our backpacks and you walk around and, and you've got mountain lions, bears, thunderstorms, avalanches, rock slides. And yet what was it that, that, that made it safe for our children? It was us, right? It was our presence. They were safer with us in a wilderness than they would have been back home by themselves, Right? It was our very presence that kept, them, that, that kept them safe. And it's the same thing with God. Right, His presence with his people allows David to say, God is my refuge. I am safer with him in the midst of chaos than I am 
removed if God is not with me. And so I can say with relative certainty uh, that, that hiding in the hills is not the solution for us. Because if it had been, then when Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer in John 17, it would not have sounded like this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Church, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And we have been commanded to make disciples and to yield to the temptation to run away, I think would be an abandonment to the calling that God has placed upon the church to preserve the world and to proclaim the gospel. And so we cannot retreat. In fact, and I'm not even an optimist, but I would say there is a great opportunity for us to be a distinction in a culture. That we're not running around like chickens with our heads cut off. That we are firmly grounded in a hopeful expectation that God is still on his throne. And when the rest of the world is running around doing this, we're left going, nothing's changed. Right? My God is still on the throne. They're just, the circumstances look different, but nothing has changed. God is still my refuge. And so what an opportunity for the church right now to be extra salty and extra bright in the light that we display. So we do not retreat. The second one, we could retaliate. And while this is not directly expressed in the Psalm, David was a man of war. And I think in verse two, when he says the wicked bend their bow, They have their arrows drawn. They're ready to ambush. As a warrior, David could have easily thought to himself, you want to fight? Oh, I'll fight. I've killed lions and I've cut off giants' heads. I'm trained, far more trained than the rest of you to do battle. But that's not what he's determined to do. He doesn't bring up an army at this point and train them in the same tactics. But I think sometimes we as believers, the church in America has responded by using the exact same tactics the world does. And I watch so much shouting and yelling and anger being reciprocated by the church. No wonder we're often perceived as a bunch of grumpy, old, bitter people. And the church in many circles is bending bows in the same way and lifting our spears in the shadows. We snipe at each other from Facebook. We gossip about our ungodly neighbors. Now make no mistake, I'm not saying that we should never do battle. There was a time where David took up a sword, but it was not today. There were times when David fought. And there were times, I think, and even Paul says, we fight. But he says we fight a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, he tells us how to adorn ourselves. The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the feet with the readiness of the gospel, extinguishing flaming darts with the shield of faith, and then putting on the mask of, no, the mask isn't there. (laughs) But notice nowhere in the section are we given arrows to shoot. Instead, we're told to take up the sword of the spirit and the word of God and to pray. That's what we've got. We have prayer and the word of God. Those are our great weapons. And guess what? They're better than any other weapon that the world has. But since much of the church in this day has largely disregarded the instructions of the Bible, we find ourselves simply too busy to pray or too bitter to pray for our enemies. Think about that one. We have no idea how to engage in spiritual warfare. So we get in the mud with our enemies and we engage with them on their terms. Church, I know that there's much wrong with our culture, but stop and think, how much do you really genuinely pray for those who vilify you? How often do you even pray for the other political party or for a political candidate that just drives you nuts? You pray for your enemies? That's what we're commanded to do. It's easy to pray for our grandparents. It's easy to pray for our church body, even 
with all the disagreements we might have in here, but we're, we're united in Christ. But what does it do when we're, when we're called to pray for our enemies? Instead, we match anger with anger. We shout when they shout. We sling the same mud. We slander them. And I believe that we miss out on a unique opportunity to dialogue with them in grace and patience and mercy and compassion for a world that is desperately looking for an alternative. We rarely offer any solutions to the shifting sand of our culture. And I'm amazed at how often we in the church, we place our hope in politics, for example. We believe that just with one legislative stroke, or if we could just get the right person on the Supreme Court, everything will finally be solidified. And the Lord says, you're never going to have stability on this earth. My kingdom's not of this world. Right? A Supreme Court justice is not going to save the day. You know who saves the day? The God-man, Jesus Christ, who lays down his life for his sheep. That's the good news, right? Jesus wins. You guys know how it ends. And so we go about and we love people because that's the tactic that God has given us. But too often we are like Peter in the garden, which I love Peter. But what's he do in the garden? He grabs the nearest sword and he starts swinging it around. And God's coming behind the whole time, putting ears back on people because we're swinging swords. And Jesus says, Peter, I love the desire, but my kingdom is not of this world. We forget that. And so we find ourselves retaliating. We vilify our opponents. There's vitriol that flows from our mouths and we get sucked into the mire and there's no distinction between us and our enemies. But I think it's because we really don't believe verse one. The Lord is our refuge. It would be interesting if many evangelicals were as passionate about proclaiming the gospel as they are about promoting a a political candidate. I've gotten on a lot of the college kids lately because they're all fired up about things. And I, I finally looked at them one day and I said, guys, I think it's great that you guys are passionate, but you guys will go down and hold up a political sign and ostracize half the population, but you will not go down and proclaim the gospel for fear of ostracizing yourself. And that's a huge inconsistency in the church. So where is your refuge? The government, your bank account, our health and long life, your greatest treasure. If you want to know, look at your prayer life. What do you pray for? I think it's one of the great blights on the Western church. When we gather for prayer, what do we pray for? We pray for grandma. We pray for cancer diagnosis. We pray for... some of these, you know, health concerns, which are about 90% of what we pray for. And I'm not diminishing those. The Lord cares about those things and we should pray for those. But how oftentimes do we lay our character flaws before the Lord and say, I need you to pray for me. I hate my neighbor and I know I shouldn't. You need to pray for me. I am bitter and angry and worried and anxious and I struggle to love my wife like I should and I struggle to, to love my children like I should. Where is our foundation? I think it's indicative of what we, by what we pray for. So we take our refuge in things that God did not design us to take a refuge in. In some ways, it's like sleeping in a tent, right? I always like, you know, it, when you're in a tent, you feel safe. But I never really understood that. Because when you're in a tent, if you're in bear country, you're nothing more than a nylon burrito, right? I mean, that's really what you are. You feel safe. And the bear's like, oh, they're, they're all trapped in there for us, right? This is really, really easy. <clears throat> this is why David proclaims this in Psalm 61. He says, hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. And here's the key part. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. 
for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against my enemy. David knows he needs something transcendent. He needs a rock that is higher than himself. He's weak. He needs protection. He doesn't ask for more arrows or a bigger sword. He prays and he seeks the Lord and he says, God, lead me to the rock that is bigger than me. I can't handle this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are great examples of this, right? That's why we love this story. They're standing there before what was probably the most powerful man in the world at this time. And the king says, bow down. And they go, yeah, we can't. Right? You don't see any example of them appealing to their political rights. They probably didn't have any. They don't plead their case. You don't see them get together and go, how many do you think we can take down before they get us? They just say, look, king, we can't bow before your idol. That's not our refuge. And our God can save us from the fire, but even if he doesn't, I'd rather be with him in eternity than be here living, breathing now. Right? That's one of perspective, looking to the rock that is higher than us. Now, again, I'm not saying, don't, please don't hear me say this. We should engage in politics. I was a social studies teacher for 11 years. I think we have an obligation to steward everything at our disposal. That includes our vote. That includes our right to dialogue freely. But I'm telling you that the bombastic and mean-spirited politics that we get sucked into can be a huge barrier to gospel presentation. With every angry chant and demeaning word, I think we lose currency with people. And we do, not, uh, we do not have the ability of Paul to say, look, we do not wage war the way the world wages war. We lose the testimony when people say, man, their allegiance is not to a higher king. Certainly not to Washington, first and foremost. That's why I think it's vital for us to keep the gospel central every day. Because many times we are tempted to take our eyes off, look at the eroding foundations, and the people who we want to hold responsible for this, and we despise them. But you know what? The only difference between us and the abortion doctor, for example, is the grace of God to us. That's it. That's it. That's the only difference. Pity and mercy for us as God's people should precede anger and frustration. But grace and kindness don't have to be weak. They can be severe and convicting at times, but may they be won over by our grace, mercy, and love towards our enemies. Alistair Begg puts it very well when he says this, until the church learns how to cry, the church loses any right to shout. Do we see our sin and our lives laid bare and exposed before a holy God? Because without his grace, we would be consumed. Do we recognize the gift of salvation and our new birth? Again, we have an obligation to preserve the world. I think it's worth fighting for at times. We are salt. I do believe that we're called to expose evil. I think that's what it means to be light. But I also believe that we are called to extend grace, love, and uncompromising goodness even to our enemies. Remember, Jesus reminds us that our love will be our defining mark. So we keep our heads and our hearts. Why? Because God is our refuge. So we think clearly, we feel properly towards the right things, and we remind ourselves, God is our refuge, love my neighbor. God is my refuge, love my neighbor. We preach it to ourselves daily. So we can't exhaust that, that concept, but I hope you overget the overarching point. So we cannot retreat, we cannot retaliate, and so what do we do? And I believe that verses four through seven lay it out, and David says, I want you to refocus. 
right? We don't retreat, we don't retaliate, but at times like this, we do refocus. And David says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heavens. His eyes see, he tests the children of man. He goes on, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. In other words, stay the course. You'll see God, stay the course. And so David calls time out. Full court press is all around him. And uh, I remember reading a story. You guys, some of you guys know who Steve Kerr is. He was a role player for the Chicago Bulls in the 90s, played with Michael Jordan. He said they were in game seven of one of their playoff series, and it was super intense, like 30 seconds left. And the other teams all, you know, they, they, they split up for a timeout. The other teams running around, kind of coming up with a game plan, drinking their water, but they looked nervous. And, and he said for a moment, he looked over at the Bulls, and they're all just sitting on the bench doing one of these. And he thought, I wonder what the difference is. And then he goes, we have Michael Jordan. Like, we have Michael Jordan. And there was no doubt in our mind that we were going to win this game. Things were calm. Why? Because we have Michael Jordan. And I think this is what David's doing. The God of the universe, I'm on his side. So it doesn't matter what the game looks like at any given time. We win. So he takes their focus from the crumbling foundations and he turns it and he says, our God is on the throne. Look to the throne room. And so that's the goal, to take your eyes off dreadful presidential debates and, the, and put them on the supreme ruler of the universe. Take your eyes off the decay of justice and look to the perfect judge. Take your eyes off the hopelessness that many of you feel this morning and remind you that the upright will behold the very face of God. I love the flow of the psalm. Verse one, it's almost a rhetorical question of absurdity. How can you say flee? My God is on the throne. Verses two through three are this factual acknowledgement with a little defiance. Sure, the wicked bend their bows, but my God is a refuge. Now verses four through seven, David's words, they cause the heart to soar with a reminder of the grandeur of God. And he reminds us of a few things as we begin to wrap up. The first is that God exists. He's not disappeared. His silence is not indifference. And Peter reminds us of that, that God's slowness or his patience is not slowness like people consider it. It's there that men might have time to repent. Dave reminds us that God is on his throne. He rules. His inactivity is not weakness or ineptitude. It's his mercy that keeps him from crushing his enemies. But make no mistake, there will come a day where all of that will end and the crushing of his enemies will take place. God's patience does end, and the psalm testifies to that. But I want you to think about how gracious it was. Those of you especially who came to know the Lord as adults, aren't you glad that God was slow to destroy his enemies? Aren't you glad that he gave time to repent? And we don't want to extend that same to the enemies around us. God, come now, and I do pray for his quick return, make no mistake. But man, there is part of me that's like, Lord, grant time, grant time. Let me go out and proclaim. I want to take part in the work as you build your kingdom. And so think about the patience that God extended to you, and we might extend that to other people as well. And so we might learn uh, much from this. When our holy God patiently endures ridicule thrown his way, when he allows the incessant mocking of his rule and his bride, the church, it's all for the sake of extending patience for people to repent. Let us be careful that we don't miss the fact that God's judgment does come. And one day, all of this will expire and he will wipe out his enemies. But that justice is not ours to enact. David also reminds us that God sees. 
He sees all that's going on. He's an intimate God. He's transcendent in one sense that we cannot get to him. But man, I'm glad he condescended to come to us. And he knows. And four times the word Yahweh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in your psalm, four times the personal covenant name of God is used. It's as if David is saying, God is right here with us. He's not this deistic God who's just up there going, I hope they figure it out. He walks with his people. He's a near king. He's a knowing king. And nothing is hidden from him. He sees the wicked in their homes. He knows their secret thoughts. There's no computer screen hidden from his view. Have you thought how oftentimes even we as believers live our lives like practical atheists, how we deny the presence of God when we sit down at the computer and we gossip or we access inappropriate images. We deny his omnipresence. We deny his omniscience. We ourselves as believers, we live like practical atheists half the time. There's no Facebook page that God doesn't see and there's no motive that escapes his knowledge. And as such, he tests the righteous. And I think this is what these crumbling foundations ultimately reveal. They reveal who the righteous are. Practice gets old, doesn't it? Those of you who are athletes, if all you ever did was practice, you you would lose your motivation for doing it. And I'm telling you, church, for us right now, this is game time. I don't know what the last decade was like in your life, reading the word, spending time in prayer and kind of going, oh, this is great. But the Lord says, okay, it's game time now. I'm putting you in. And we're going to find out who's been prepared and who hasn't been prepared. Those who have hidden God's word in their heart, those who have cultivated habits of prayer, those who have made habits of sharing the gospel, those who have made habits of coming to church and engaging and encouraging the covenant community. It's game time. Because trial plus time equals our true colors. And the destruction of the foundations, it's a tragedy on one front, but it's an opportunity on the other. Because when the fault line splits, you're going to have to find yourself on one side or another. And what will you be found clinging to when the foundations erode? Are you going to be checking your bank account every minute as the stock market falls? Or are you going to say, man, I have pleasures at the Lord's right hand forevermore? It doesn't matter right? Give us this day our daily bread. Will you be hiding in a tent trying to outlast the tornado or will, you, or will you be sitting peacefully in the cleft of the rock? Will you be like Abraham who leaves his home looking for a permanent city whose designer and builder is God? Will you be like Moses who willingly leaves all the luxury and safety of Egypt because he considered the reproach of Christ infinitely more valuable? than all that Egypt could offer him. Will you be like Paul, who endured beating after beating for the sake of the gospel? Look, friends, I don't know what's going on. I I have, the older I get, the less sure I am of almost anything. And in many ways, I find myself like Habakkuk. And I love, it's my favorite minor prophet, Habakkuk, who cries out to the Lord. He looks around in Israel and he says, he says, God, how can you sit there silently? Don't you see justice being perverted everywhere? Where are you? And God, who rarely answers man in the Bible, but he gives Habakkuk an answer, and he says, Habakkuk, oh man, you just sit and listen. Everybody who hears of this plan, their ears are going to tingle. It's a great plan. And I'm sure Habakkuk's like, all right, Lord, when are you coming? What are you going to do? And Habakkuk, and God says, oh, the Babylonians? Yeah, I'm going to bring them in and wipe you out. Habakkuk had to say, whoa, 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 whoa. That is not what I thought you were going to do. How can you use those pagans to come in and judge your people? And God never really answers the question there, right? He just says, I'm God. And I love Habakkuk's surrender. 
He says, and I need to remind you, first of all, he tells Habakkuk how to respond. Chapter two, verse four, he says, live by faith. Habakkuk said, what do I do? The Babylonians are coming. The just will live by faith. You trust me, I'll protect you. I'll take care of it. And so Habakkuk, you know, there had to have been some internal wrestling. We get to chapter three, and here's what it says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Here's a conclusion. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And so Habakkuk doesn't know what God is up to. And even if he disagreed with God's plan, he pledges an unwavering commitment to worship God and trust him. Notice that his faith is not circumstantial. He doesn't say, as long as things go well, God, I will worship you. There's no prosperity gospel here in Habakkuk's mind. He says, there may be no food, there may be nothing for me, yet I will worship the Lord. I will find joy in God. This is what it means to take refuge in the Lord. I'm reminded of something J. Vernon McGee says. It's one of my favorite quotes. He says, this is God's universe and he does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. Now look, friends, God is on his throne. I don't know what he's doing. I, I don't have, I don't, I don't get to see the, the process. I just know the end. And it ends with God on his throne and his people at the foot of that throne forever singing praise. And I'm speculating here. What if the foundations are crumbling so that the people of faith might shine all the brighter? What if the immigration crisis, for example, is God's way of saying, I'm gonna bring people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to your doorstep so that you don't even have to go. Just share the gospel with them. What if, what if he's emptying the storehouses so that we might find our ultimate satisfaction in him and display that joy to the world? What if something like this virus is here to provide an opportunity for those of us who know and love Christ and rest in him to go and do ministry to those who are tremendously fearful for their lives. Look, God has already demonstrated the cross that he works from a completely different economy than our own. And so here's what I want to leave you with, right? What do the righteous do when the foundations crumble? And there's no secret. We do the same thing we've always done. We worship the Lord. We proclaim the gospel. You want to make a difference in this culture? You don't do it with a vote or an angry editorial. Too often we throw amb ambiguous cliches around like impact the world for Jesus. So I get on the college kids all the time. You guys love the broad, change the world. I say, how about you just change your neighborhood, right? Go impact the world for Christ. How about you just share the gospel with your neighbor? Let's start there. My mom would say that all the time. I, I'd come home, mom, we need to do this in the world. And she'd say, you go clean your room first. Like, <laughs> keep your room clean and then we can worry about you telling other people all the other things that they need to fix in their lives. And so that's what I want to encourage you to do, all right? When the foundations are being destroyed, what do we do? We praise the Lord. We love our neighbors. We honor our spouses. We raise our children properly to serve Christ. We work harder than anybody else in the office so that people can know, man, he serves a different master than I do. All of these things are the distinction. And so the goal for us as believers is that we might be a nail in a firm place. 
right? They're grabbing onto anything that they can grab onto. And we're saying, hold on. I, have a, I can point you to the refuge, right? I'm hidden in the cleft of the rock. This nail will hold, so grab onto it. There is an anchor for the soul, as the writer of Hebrews says, and that's a great phrase, an anchor for the soul. So Jesus Christ is that anchor, friends, right? And the foundations may crumble, and you may wake up tomorrow, and the news may get even worse. We don't run to the news headlines first and foremost. There's no promises there, but there are promises here. So hide these in your heart, tether yourself to them, and rest in the cleft of the rock. To the praise and honor of his great name, amen? amen. Let me pray.